Hey, what is up, financial advisors? It's me, Sarah G, with the Smack, and I am back. Today, we're going to be talking about just continuing this debate that Scott and I started a few months ago on does direct indexing suck, truly, or are there some redeeming qualities? And we have a few special guests with us today to join in the rumble. It's about to get rowdy here, folks. So fasten your seatbelts. But first, I just have to bore you for a second. We're going to be talking about an investment product, but there's nothing in this podcast that can be construed as investment advice of any sort. If you desire financial recommendations specific to your financial situation, then ask a financial advisor. Woohoo! So hopefully that ends the boredom. We got that out of the way. Let's start. So we have Scott Salaski here. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Scott's kind of my like maverick buddy. <laughs> Whenever I go on social media and I say some outlandish comment <laughs> degrading the industry, I can always count on Scott to defend me when the haters come in. He's like, my, I almost feel like he's like my bodyguard <laughs> on Twitter. All right. And also we have Igor Smolyansky of Vilga Financial. Hello, Igor. Hi, how are you? Good. And Michael Cotinaros of Solar Beam Capital. Uh, hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. All right, gentlemen. So I think I've spoken enough here for now. Does direct indexing suck or am I crazy? I agree with you, Sarah. You're not crazy. I can take a uh, first shot. Um, I think it's important to frame the, the discussion. Uh, I think we're trying to figure out whether a tool is good or not good. Like, you know, the value of a tool. We're not talking about necessarily a strategy. We're talking about is hammer a good tool? Well, it depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to run a nail through the wall, probably a chainsaw is not an ideal tool for that. So when people advertise direct indexing as a solution to all the problems, I am with you. Like the debate is over, it's not. It's a very specific, tool uh, that applies to a very specific set of investors with very specific needs. So if we frame the discussion that way, uh, I think it's going to be a little easier for us to, um, to have a con constructive conversation. But first, let's define what it is. You know, in my uh, view, direct indexing, there's a number of ways to, 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 to define it. Direct indexing, per personalized indexing, uh, one way to define it is, um, is an attempt to replicate performance of an index by purchasing individual securities that make up a representative sample of securities that make up, uh, make up the index. And the attempt to do that is to uh, derive a few benefits, key benefits, including tax optimization on one side, and we can get into that, and then portfolio customization on the other side. So these are two main benefits of using the tool. Uh, Michael, if you want to chime in and uh, correct me where, where I'm wrong. Uh, no, I agree with a lot of what's been said. So in a survey of over 1,000 high net worth individuals, 73% of them said they wanted a personalized investing experience, yet 57% said they're not getting that. Well, what's happening? So if you think about how investors are evolving, there's really a demand from investors to have some kind of personalized experience with their advisors. The question of what am I paying money for? They want to have a control and say on many cases of what happened, is happening with their investments. This is not necessarily new. We've seen this with Sharia for quite a long time and ESG and many other parts are just a new continuation of this. But here's the problem. So if you think about more and more parameters you're putting into the building of a portfolio, so it's like now I want to be, say, a Sharia or ESG, or I want companies that this, have this specific dividend yield or all these parameters. Um, a lot of times these are not hard constraints, but preferences. And when you get into multiple preferences, you quickly evolve from the two-dimensional um, risk return frontier to a multi-dimensional optimization problem. And what happens is as you move into ultra high dimensional frontiers, you end up with high dimensional Pareto frontiers, very computationally intensive. An easy way to think of this is in a, because you don't, cannot really characterize these high dimensions very well. An easier example in lower dimensions is a knapsack problem. It's a simple mathematical problem of you have objects that have weights and heavy values, and you're trying to maximize the total value of those number of objects. Well, mathematically, we know that this is an n choose k problem. The n choose k formula is a factorial problem. Factorials grow faster than polynomials. So you quickly end up 
because there's over 30,000 publicly traded companies, just looking at securities alone, something whose computational order exceeds the number, like the computational number of things you have to consider exceeds the number of particles in the known universe, like in the visible universe. So it's computationally impossible to do this optimization. Direct indexing is a solution because you move from the, how do I find the optimal portfolio over the existence of all theoretically possible portfolios in an ultra high dimension that I'm trying to optimize under to starting with an object of say 500 to 1000 securities in a pre-configured package. And then you're just using a normal search process. So you can use well-known search algorithms to explore the space and arrive at some kind of portfolio. Direct indexing is simply a computational reduction technique that allows you to address very complex investor concerns over the kind of holdings in their portfolio um, in a way that is actually computationally feasible. And you need to have some sort of computationally feasible approximation because if you are dealing with a complex set of preferences, there's no way to do that otherwise. The computational, the, essentially the computational time is longer than the lifespan of the universe. Okay, I thought I was going to be the nerdy one, but clearly that's not the case. <laughs> okay, so hold, let's let's unpack that for a minute, Michael. First of all, what was the survey that you cited? So that is a survey by Refiniv on over 1,000 high net worth individuals uh, across the globe. Wait, I'm sorry, by who? Refinitive. Refinitive. So Lone Stock Exchange Group. Okay. So let's, let's debate point by point, shall we? So Igor made the point that it's a tool and every tool can solve a specific, is intended to solve a specific problem. Michael said quite a few things there. We could go back over the, the level of detail. Um, we could go back over in detail, but let, what would you say the main points of what you just said are? Investors want more personalization. It, it is a way to build a personalized portfolio that can match an investor's unique preferences in a way that is computationally feasible because traditional approaches will not work. Okay. So, so what problem what problem is this trying to solve? I think, you know, based on what you just said, Michael, I mean, at the end of the day, you can do that today. You don't need a piece of software to do that or a tool that's created. I mean, advisors can put together personalized portfolios today. They've been around forever through separate uh, managed accounts, SMA accounts. So. Uh, is the technology what we're talking about is what's being promoted is direct indexing because at the end of the day, none of it's indexing unless you're actually following an index, even with individual stocks. It, it's a computation reduction technique um, because the level of personalization. Can Hold be on, wait, Michael, Michael, I'm, I, I like your point, but can you please just define what that means for the people in the audience that don't, don't know what that, and we can move on to the next point. My, I don't want to stop you, but I have to, okay? Oh, so. my apologies. Um, so basically the idea is that in order to achieve very high levels of personalization um, that truly mimics an individual's preferences, you cannot achieve that with modern computer software running traditional methods and direct indexing does allow you to do that. But what is a computational reduction technique? Oh, right. So basically what it says is that the, uh, computation I'm trying to perform is too complex. I cannot mathematically solve this problem. So I'm going to approximate it somehow, approximate the solution. So what, what problem are we trying to solve here? Personalization? Um, yeah, so it is a personalization problem of matching someone's preferences to a basket of assets. Uh, let me just jump in real quick. So uh, uh, in very simple terms, uh, I, I th do you think it's controversial that we want our clients to be in a portfolio that is tax efficient and that solves uh, existing problems such as or existing concentration, existing um, you know exposures that may they may have just because of the area where they operate? So let's say somebody works for finance industry they probably already have quite a bit of exposure to the industry itself. They may have restricted stock. So you have those exposures. And if you just suggest that they buy, let's say for lack of a better example, S&P 500, just a simple index fund, 
that is going to have a certain amount of exposure to an asset class that they're already overexposed to. That's one of the areas where customization helps. On the tax side, again, we can go down that, that, that road. And uh, as Michael suggested, each investor is uniquely uh, described by these conflicting uh, parameters and constraints that Michael described, we're trying to computational, computationally solve. But uh, if you reduce the number of assets in your portfolio, your opportunity set to actually achieve those customizations, whether it's on the tax side or on risk reduction side, is obviously dramatically reduced. Now, obviously, there's a trade-off, and we can talk about that. You know, you create you know more noise; it's the potential is more expensive. So we can argue about that. But again, to reframe the conversation, you know, uh, to answer Scott's uh, question, why? Why are we even talking about that? Why even do direct indexing? And direct indexing might not be the right term, but basically saying, hey, we want to, uh, we have an alternative. If we somehow determine, you know, based on our analysis of asset allocation that, you know, this client has to have X amount of money in uh, large cap US, you can either give them, you know, a simple index fund, ETF, whatever, SPY, uh, or, you know, if it's a portfolio that is large enough and, you know, it's a bunch of different parameters, you can say, well, instead of buying this one asset, we're going to buy 100 securities that get you close, not exactly, obviously, not exactly uh, close to the index, but close enough. And we can talk about what's close enough, you know, tracking error and all that stuff. Uh, but here are the benefits of doing that. And some clients would benefit from it more than others. And for those, that is the tool that you actually want to deploy as opposed to, you know, and the reason why I keep using the tool is, you know, uh, I'm a, I mean, I've been in finance for more than 20 years, but I've been a planner for less than two years. So I'm a, a career changer. And I grew up thinking that all insurance products are bad until I took a deeper dive in, into it. And I said, well, I realized that not true, they're oversold. And we, you know, we already had podcasts on that. And, you know, that, that was, that was a lot of fun. Uh, but there's a subset of clients that some insurance products are exactly the right fit. So, you know, I think it would be borderline, you know, uh, irresponsible on our part to just say, well, let's just throw the tool out because it doesn't fit most of the clients. There's a subset of clients that it actually fits pretty, pretty well. And we can get into that, you know, who, who benefits from it, who doesn't. Uh, there's no big surprise. Obviously, the larger the portfolio, the more benefit you get. But uh, you know, I'll just shut up and let you jump jump in. Well, I mean, the, what I would say about this is, I mean, some of the stuff that you just said, Igor, was I don't totally disagree with. It, it is a very subset of the population that this could be beneficial to, but it's not the mass public. And my issue with direct indexing is number one is the name because it's being promoted as direct indexing for the masses by Charles Schwab, by Fidelity, Altruist, all a number of other providers out there. Obviously, Vanguard's got into it by buying Just Invest, uh, the few other acquisitions that occurred in this space recently. So it's being teed up to promote to the masses, even though the masses are not the people that are gonna benefit from this type of strategy. It's the very subset that you talked about, the person that works for a publicly held company, has a lot of concentration in company stock, or has inherited stock and, and has some very low cost basis and uh, a, a small basket of holdings that they want to, again, replicate an index, like let's say the S&P 500 or other indexes, and then have that exposure excluded from there. So you still have the index returns. But the problem is, in my, my opinion, is it's being promoted to the masses and it's also being promoted as a tool where you can have this mass customization. And, and when I hear that, I'm not hearing we're going to customize it around your, your concentrated tech holdings or, you know, whatever industry you happen to be in, that you have this either company stock or low cost basis positions. I hear, well, I don't like this stock because, you know, I don't agree with their their moral issues, or I don't like this stock because I don't like their products or, or so on. So you start customizing it like that. Now you don't have indexing and now it shouldn't be called direct indexing. So to me, there's a lot of issues involved in it. That's some of the ways it's being promoted. 
along with the tax side of it. I mean, to me, the tax side of it is a whole different thing where you have a lot of promotion on the tax loss harvesting benefits, but then you start drilling down into what's really being promoted. And you've got several large RIAs out there that are managing multi-billions of dollars that are promoting, oh, the tax loss harvesting. But then when you really press them on it, it's, oh, well, we just want to generate $3,000 a year where the client can write that off against ordinary income. You can do that with tax loss harvesting ETFs in that regular index funds. You don't need some complicated direct indexing strategy. So my first thing is I want people to stop calling it indexing, but I think that that train has left the station because it, everybody's calling it indexing of some sort, whether it's personalized indexing, direct indexing, custom indexing, you name it. Uh, I can see most of the points. I don't think we, we actually have, uh, you know, we can we can drill into individual components, but it, there's not a lot of controversy here. You know, I personally agree with most of what you just said. You know, is it being uh, currently like this hot thing that is supposed to solve uh, problems for majority of people? Uh, I think it's a, it's a little, it's get it's running a little hot, uh, but. You know, I wouldn't necessarily, I think the point that uh, the industry is trying to make, and uh, I'm the last person who's going to defend the industry, um, <laughs> is that it used to be the purview of high net worth individuals to even get into this space. And I think the point that the vanguards and fidelities of the world are trying to make, not very eloquently, but what the point that they're trying to make is that because of reduced commissions, or elimination of commissions. It was you still have a bid ask spread, so let's not forget it's not a completely free ride when you when you trade. Uh, and uh, the fact that technology is finally at a place where it allows um, somebody who doesn't have uh, a huge portfolio to uh, customize customize it based on some parameters. Uh, that did not exist five years ago. We could argue whether it's useful or not. And, you know, that's a, that's a valid argument. But I think that's where they're, are they overselling it? Probably. But there is some truth to it, as in uh, the threshold for this product is dropping in terms of the uh, size of the portfolio, whereas uh, it used to be only family offices that used to do it on the back of an envelope. Um, whereas now technology does help. And you can, if you have, if you have an existing situation or if you're customizing something based on your tax profile, uh, get into that space without uh, having a massive portfolio. Yeah, now you can do $2,000 across hundreds of stocks. That's crazy. That's the extreme. Yeah, that's the extreme that I would not, you know, let, let, so let's talk about, you know, what it's, it's a question of defending the industry versus defending, a, let's say, a practice that I that I personally, the, the service that I perform for my, for my clients. And granted, you know, if your portfolio is say $100,000, chances are, you know, it would not be a wise, um, uh, my time would not be wise to spend to focus on the direct indexing. Once you start stepping up to let's say a million dollars and we can you know, discuss how I get to that. Uh, I think it is uh, borderline uh, irresponsible for me not to offer that uh, to a client if I have the toolkit and if it doesn't cost them extra uh, because I already have the, the the fixed cost built in. You know what I mean? So, um, and again, five years ago, it was not available. Five years ago, we still had commissions. So the the size of the portfolio that would benefit from it would be dramatically larger than that. That, that is my point. Are we down to $2,000 spread across 200 positions, you know, again, there's definitely a cost in creating noise in your portfolio uh, to potentially unnecessarily, but there's a threshold. And the point is that the threshold has been dropping steadily with the invent of technology and uh, elimination of commissions. But outside of the concentrated stock thing that we just talked about, and, and again, maybe low cost basis position, maybe through inheritance or other things, I'm still at a loss of what problem we're trying to solve and personalization even in the, the study that Michael referenced where 70% plus of people that were interviewed that were high net worth want personalization. What does that mean exactly? Does that mean full on, you know, picking individual stocks, having hundreds of positions, or is that talking about personalization around their tax issues? 
around their investment goals and objectives and a whole host of other things that have nothing to do with picking hundreds of individual stocks. And then also the, the issue that I have with this is that it's also being promoted as kind of a a certain style of the portfolio, direct indexing, and, and most of the providers out there, again, I'm sure this will change over time, are trying to replicate, let's say, an S&P 500 and then have this personalization. Well, if it's good enough for the S&P, then why aren't they doing every single aspect of a portfolio? Why aren't we buying hundreds and hundreds of bonds? Why aren't we doing that with small cap stocks, value stocks, growth, et cetera? So it's just it's being promoted as something that's just the latest shiny object. And unfortunately, it's getting a lot of press because big money's behind it and big firms like Schwab and Fidelity, et cetera. Uh, uh, again, there's no argument that it's being overpromoted, but there is a benefit. So as an example, let's say, going back to my, my example, uh, you have an option of buying a single index fund. And you could do much worse, obviously, than, than, than that. Uh, or you can replicate the performance pretty closely with, let's say, 100 components, right? Why, why would you do that? Well, at that point, clearly, you know, there's going to be some of them that go up, some of them that go down, obvious things. Uh, absolutely, you can, at that point, benefit pretty much every year from the $3,000 Right off versus ordinary, which is you know, I mean, it's not like it's not going to break the bank, but you know, three four hundred dollars a year consistently, uh, pretty much uh, just just in technicality, um, and you know the uh, the individual circumstance where each individual client will actually have a different combination of. Uh, factors that matter to them. So for example, some clients do not care as much about tracking S&P very closely. You know, there's S&P, you know, between us, it's not a magical index. It just happens to be most popular and it's very cheap in terms of getting exposure to. And it's very hard for an active manager to beat it because of fees and taxes. But once you remove the fees and taxes, you know, and introduce the concept of tracking error, you know, the, by the way, I'll, I'll take a step back. Why is it called indexing? It may be a mislabel, but the reason why they keep throwing the word indexing in there is because all else being equal, they are trying, like all in all those portfolios, they are trying to reduce the tracking error. They're trying to, as, as they try to customize for a specific client with specific needs, all else being equal, they're trying to get as close to index performance as possible. They're trying to reduce that tracking error, and that's where Michael was describing, that is computationally intensive. Does it have to be super computationally intensive? In the personal finance world, I don't think so, because that tracking error could go both ways. And it's, again, if you were to build a client portfolio from scratch, you probably would not necessarily arrive at S&P 500. Again, it's not magic. Uh, you know, on a risk-adjusted basis, if all of us believe in some form of efficient market theory, the concept of a monkey throwing darts at, at Wall Street Journal or an active manager underperforming is not because active manager is, you know, stupider than the monkey. It's because after adjusted for fees and taxes, you know, that's that's what happens. Um, so, you know, if you have a very inexpensive process and you don't charge the client extra, you know, uh, and they have specific <clears throat> needs in terms of, you know, as, as an example. You have a client, oh, but Igor, has... but Igor, they, they they are charging extra fees. So even if you, as the advisor, you're not, there's platform fees attached to this type of strategy through Schwab, Fidelity, other places that range anywhere from you know twenty to fifty basis points. Most of them around forty. Fair enough, but but it's basically if I was actually an insurance salesman and I wasn't using the tactics um, that you know the insurance industry is known for. And you're telling me that, but your product is bad. And I'm saying the product is not bad. It's just the industry has a bad reputation for, for it used to be for a reason. Uh, and uh, if we're discussing the tool, I'm happy to defend the tool. If you're asking me to defend fidelities and vanguards of the world, they're charging 40 extra basis points to clients that a lot of times should not pay that. I'm not going to defend them. All right. There are clients that benefit beyond the 40 basis points because of, and we can talk about that again, 
there are clients that benefit beyond the 40 basis points. So if they don't, they're not lucky enough to hire Igor Smolyansky as the advisor, they can go to Fidelity, pay the 40 basis points, and probably still benefit from it. And by the way, because we're just entering that, the 40 basis points at some point is going to drop to 30 and to 20 because the technology is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Michael, you look like you want to say something. Uh, no, I, I don't know where to where to jump in. But yeah, I mean, I agree with a lot of the points that have been said. Uh, I think an advisor has a duty to not just assume any one solution is the right thing. So you shouldn't assume direct indexing isn't the solution just as much as you should assume it is. And the fees are a really big deal. So um, part of re the reason why people pay advisors is to keep them from going on a platform that is going to charge a massive number of fees to direct index. And, you know, firms are like, we can get people in on direct indexing. And then before they know it, they're paying more to direct index than they would if they just held the ETF. And that's a real problem. And I think eventually the fees will reduce in this space, but that's something you should think about. And there's all, I mean, this is going to sound a strange thing, but you, as an advisor, you don't need to use a third-party platform to direct index. You could just do it yourself, right? Theoretically. That is what I If do. you have the right tech stack. If you have the right tech stack, you can do it yourself. And if you don't have the right tech stack, then like what kind of investments is your firm making in technology? Like, have you just chosen not to adopt the newest technology or, you know, what is your engineering team like at your own firm? Well, I still come back to my, my original question and not to beat a dead horse here, but outside again, that few subset uses that we talked about, I don't know what problem we're trying to solve to the masses other than give them a $3,000 a year write-off against ordinary income that we can do with, again, ETFs. So, so let's go through an example, a couple of case studies, if that, if that helps. Um, if you, we, we would agree, I think most of us would agree that tax deferral is usually a positive thing. So especially if you're in a high tax bracket, so you're in a high tax bracket and you expect the tax bracket to drop by the time you're, you're in the distribution phase, right? So that difference between your current marginal and future effective rate make make a big deal. Like pretty much in everything we do as, a, as advisors, we pay attention to that. We should be paying attention to that when it comes to uh, investment management as well. Uh, when, uh, when, you're, um, when you expect significant cash flows, such as, you know, again, uh, option expiration, RSUs, employee stock purchase plan, uh, sale of your investment property, you do expect some forced uh, capital gains to come through at some point. If there is a, an inexpensive way to defer that, that's where tax loss harvesting comes into play. And obviously the reason why tax, why direct indexing is associated with tax loss harvesting is because you just have more flexibility, you have more components as opposed to, look, you can actually, you know, call it direct indexing, call it uh, by different name, but if we're sticking with S&P 500, you could effectively replicate the performance by 11 sector funds. You can buy proportional 11 sector funds. And again, where do you draw the line where, you know, this is appropriate versus, you know, let's go into more detail, but 11 sector funds, you know, use, you know, iShares or, uh, Vanguard, 10 basis points each, buy them in proportion, you know, and one thing I didn't mention is asset location, uh, you know, uh, a subject that, uh, that is relevant. So if you have high cash flow assets sitting in your taxable account, if you actually create a uh, direct indexing portfolio and you can spread it between tax advantage accounts and taxable accounts, uh, that is an additional kick, you know, in terms of deferring your taxes on, on dividends, as an example. So, you know, your typical, you know, you take your ETF uh, for financials and energy and put that into your tax advantage account. You keep your technology in your taxable account and, you know, it all accumulates. I mean, it's, you know, if we, if we accept the tax deferral for some clients is a useful strategy, uh, all it is is just extending that to their portfolio. I, 
I think I'd like to give a couple examples where there are client cases where it might actually make sense to consider this as a good option. So the first is Sharia. So if you have anyone who is looking for Sharia-based investments, the problem is you don't have a lot of options to choose from in the fund space. And a lot of that, it's like, well, I have a couple like managed funds and ETFs to choose from. So to say, well, I could start with an index and only take the things in the S&P 500 that are Sharia compliant, and then add a couple additional layers on that. Because if someone's Sharia, they may have some additional things that they want or don't want. That's quite easy for someone to work with. And they feel like they are now getting that personal experience from their advisor. And they're not stuck choosing from the three to four options available. Another thing you might hear is someone, I mean, everyone like ESG is like, you know, beaten to death. And it's like, but you will hear things about like ESG. You could have people want ESG and Sharia. And that's a total nightmare. So if someone has a case like that, that's important. A lot of times you'll hear people come to advisors and say, well, I don't want meta in my portfolio, or I don't want this particular asset in my portfolio. And a lot of the low-cost ETFs contain these larger companies like meta, because that's how you build a low-cost ETF is you have these relatively large cap companies a lot of time. Um, So these are the cases when you should think about direct indexing. Someone says, I have this thing that I want and the current index environment is not a good fit, then that's an option to consider that. If someone says, you know, I just broadly want a portfolio that looks kind of like the market and I don't want to pay a lot in fees, S&P 500s and a couple other indexes are probably not a bad starting point. As always, it should be about what is the best fit for that client. And just saying, well, this is or is not good for that. Like you, I don't think you should draw conclusions across like all this space because every client is unique and the solution you should build for them should work for them. So direct indexing will not work for a lot of clients. For some clients, it will work. And then it becomes a question of, well, are people saying, I don't want this because it's not an option or like, are they not pushing in these areas? Like there are a lot of people who might want a Sharia portfolio, but it's just not feasible for them or it's too expensive or advisors say, I don't have an option for that. So they end up with something that doesn't match their lifestyle and doesn't match their beliefs. But it's not indexing then. What you just described for those uses, you, you don't end up with the performance or replication of the index. So my bigger issue is again, what problem are we trying to solve? Because there is index funds already out there. You can go replicate the S&P dirt cheap. You don't need to have personalization to do that. But if you're talking about the two examples that you laid out, those examples, when you get done customizing the portfolio is not indexing. So again, I don't care if people do that. I don't care if people want that and that's all fine, but don't call it indexing. That That's my big issue with this is it's confusing the public of what indexing is. And I think a lot of that has to do with this in my personal opinion, because we've kind of wrung all the, the fees out of indexing, got them down to dirt cheap across the board. And there's no money to be made in these products now for the product providers. So they have to look for alternative uses. And that's fine if they want to go down the road of direct indexing. But now they're going to ride the coattails of the popularity. And, and really, I think the, the correct use that most people use indexing for and kind of muddy up the water in a real major way to the mass public. I, I do agree that uh, there, the way it's being phrased and marketed is not how I would like it to see. Um, And then there's the question of, is it or is it not like indexing? I mean, you essentially could, if you wanted to create whatever structure relationship you want to the index, um, there are methods to do that. Um, So if you want it to very closely match that index, there are methods to do that. If you don't care as much about whether or not it matches that index, then you could avoid that. Um, Right. And you just get back at that point to, you know, again, kind of active management stock picking. The only difference is now you're adding the personalization twist to it. So you're personalizing it to a specific client rather than sort of putting everybody in the same individual stock SMA account. And that's fine if people want that type of product and that has existed for years and will continue to exist now with this new label, direct indexing. And that's my big issue with the whole thing. I I don't in a sense think it has in that way because um, when you talk about I, like I said earlier, um, with a lot of math, which I'm sure no one appreciated, uh, indexing, the direct indexing idea is the starting point for determining what to hold starts with that index. Um, that's the basis of that. It starts at some point, the index to then 
build out from. And the farther you build out from that index, the less theoretically it will match that index, maybe, maybe not actually. Um, the closer you hold to that index, the more it will be like that. Um, it, would, it could go the other way around. You start with a portfolio that's far away from the index and, and you are building a completion portfolio that gets as, over time gets closer and closer to the index. So uh, Scott, you used that example it was, and I thought it was a good example where you take on a client portfolio where you have a, a low, low cost basis stock and they basically say, hey, you know, ideally I want to have, you know, my portfolio track S&P 500. So you can take a dramatic measure and just sell it and just take a tax hit. Or you can design uh, a portfolio that is going to get close to the index performance. And again, now the tools that, that allow that and either slowly but surely, you know, build some tax loss harvesting and reduce that over time, that concentration, or, you know, you know, use, you, you, you have a lot of Morgan Stanley stock as an example, you know, you, you know, and you're building an S&P 500. So you're probably going to go easy, both on Morgan Stanley and all the other financials. Um, and I understand that you are attacking the labeling. Again, I'm not defending the label. Well, that, that's part of it. The label. But, 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 but the labeling is not, I mean, it's not great, but again, uh, the idea there is that you are trying to approach it. And if you, if you basically say an uneducated consumer says, reads it saying, oh, it's an actually a performance of an index, then obviously we have an educational problem more than anything else. Uh, but again, to, you know, before I rudely interrupted Michael, he, 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 uh, he was making a case that you can start with an index and then customize it. And the point that I was trying to make is that you can start with a portfolio that is very far from the index and build around a completion portfolio and an attacks, uh, efficient, in a tax efficient manner, get there. Is anyone doing this for clients? <laughs> That's exactly kind of what I was thinking, Sarah. This is all, it's great people are doing it, but it's like, there's a lot of, hypothetical stuff here. I mean, especially when you get, we haven't really talked about it, but when you get onto the tax loss harvesting side, like, you know, let's look at this. I mean, a, a lot of clients that are in retirement or very close to retirement, they're not going to continue to make new investments in this portfolio. So they put a large chunk of their money into a direct indexing strategy. You go out and you buy hundreds of stocks and now they have these. There's only so much runway you have to do tax loss harvesting. It runs out. And I will give it to you that there's probably more runway than there is just buying index funds, but once the runway is gone, there's no new deposits. So what's the advantage now? I have hundreds of stocks in there. I got to either pay somebody to, to again, match an index or pay a provider 40 basis points, give or take, you know, again, those fees could come down over time, but this is, there's a lot of, to Sarah's point, who's doing this? I mean, other than it's being promoted and sure the products are being offered and you know, there, there's demand. I think from advisors and certainly Wall Street for this type of new stuff. But I've been in this industry for over 20 years and I've never had a client come in and say the first thing on their list or even the last thing on their list was, I want complete personalization, buy me individual stocks. I don't want my portfolio to look like the next guys. They come in and they want their other issues solved. Can Do they have enough money to retire? When can they retire? And then you name the, the financial goals after that and then what's the best products or investments to put them in based on that. And it, it's kind of like the reverse now. People are coming in and based on the, the survey you, you cited, Michael, that 70% plus of, of people want personalization. Who are these people? I've never run into them in 20 years. Well, I mean, again, we are attacking the tool, even though I think that I use the tool all the time, not all the time, not for all the clients, but I use it quite a bit. Uh, and, you know, it's a question of education. People didn't know what the index funds were until you know we got there. They didn't know what ETFs were until we got there. So if, if the label is bad, I, I will concede. But if the tool is trying to solve personal issues that without the tool would be hard to solve, uh, then it's a question of, again, you're trying to have us defend the industry. All I'm telling you is that you know, my, in my private practice, I do that. You know, I, I employ it. I deployed the. I deployed that tool for my clients. Not all of them. Not the same way. All right. Let's let's talk. Let's talk about that actually. 
So, Michael, you said you also do this. Yes. Where does the idea come from when you end up effectuating this? Does it come from the client or does it come from you? Uh, so a little bit of both because we're a quant firm, which is not typical for RIAs. So it's always- What do you mean by a quant firm? Quantitative, we, our focus is always in quantitative finance. Uh, yeah, okay. So, but, but we, hold on, that's so broad. So you're a registered investment advisor firm. Mm -hmm. You you provide investment management services and also financial planning, or you just manage the money for the client. Uh, both, both is what we do, okay. uh, and we do it um, using data and using quantitative methods, and it naturally arises when we talk with our clients. So we never- Hold on, but so like separately managed accounts? Yeah, it's amazing. Okay, quantitative SM, okay. Is that a bit bizarre for- No, I just wanna make sure because I talk to financial advisors all day long and they throw out all kinds of lingo and then it, you, they could two different advisors can say the same term and be doing two separate things. So, okay using quantitative methods to manage separately managed accounts. Now, also, Michael, what kind of investors do you work with? Are we talking about the emerging affluent or are we talking about 5 million and above? Uh, it's mostly institutional, so. Institutional investors, okay. okay. So yeah, it, it is a different kind of market there. So a lot of what I say here does not work on very small accounts, so. How are you that defining very small? Like $100,000 accounts. It may not be realistic because you don't act. Essentially, you may not like on these accounts, It may you may not be able to properly implement that solution because it's just not realistic to have that many holdings in some of those accounts. Although like nowadays, I think you could. Um, All right. So let's say an institutional investor comes to you and says, we, we don't want companies that buy nukes what do you say that's something we can work with i would start with that i'd ask them what their other kind of goals and objectives are um really go through it and i would build out a list of securities i think are a match for them and then we would go through um depending on the size if they're okay with something in the 30 to 40 holding range um, that is broadly correlated with an index of their choice that would, um, we would go through each of those holdings. If I think that they really care, if someone's saying like, I don't want nukes and something like that, they probably have very specific feelings about what should and should not be in their portfolio. So we'd go through them all and make sure they're okay with it. If they don't, then we might look at ETF solutions. Okay. So let's say that they don't know anything about direct indexing. Then you say, what would you say then? Um, I would, so I never start with like a, hey, we're going to direct index. It's always sort of, what are you looking for? And if they say there's certain things that they do or don't want, or there's some things that are, are or are not looking in their portfolio, I could say we could implement a solution that uses individual holdings rather than funds, say ETFs and mutual funds to do that. And the individual holdings will allow you to control what is and is not allowed in your portfolio. So I actually don't tend to use the word direct indexing with clients because I don't feel like it really conveys why that's generating value. But when you have the discussion with them, okay, so, like, so first of all, what percentage of your clients would you say that you're doing this for? We mostly use direct indexing solutions. We really don't touch the other methods um, because we basically built our own suite of direct indexing tools. So there is no cost to the client for using direct indexing other than the exchange fees associated with that, which are often not trivial depending on the number of holdings. So there's it's just the same fee that they would have paid 
if you weren't executing this strategy. Correct. There is no uh, additional charge for using that. Yeah. Okay. Which is different than how most of the industry works, but yeah. Right. Okay. So Igor, tell us what, tell us about your experience with this. First of all, what kinds of clients do you work with? What do you do for them? My practice is uh, I have a flat fee um, RIA uh, and two basic services, comprehensive planning and optional investment management. So I don't lead with investment management at all, although most of my clients um, do use the service. And you provide the investment management or I do. Okay. I do. As part of the flat fee, yes, I provide. securities? I'm sorry? Using ETFs or individual securities? It depends on the client. Okay. It, really, it depends on the client. Uh, it depends on what, what is it that they need. If they have certain complexities, and most of my clients do, that can be solved by building a portfolio that tracks the index closely, but not exactly. And I obviously have to do some education to show what it really means. Uh, they, and, and always, it's always a trade-off. What are we trying to achieve? Are we trying to be as tax efficient as possible? And in certain cases that is, you know, I know what people say, well, it's the tax, you know, tail, you know, wagging the whole, the whole thing. And, um, you know, I am biased towards, um, you know, towards, uh, tax efficiency and fee reduction because um, obviously not at the expense of larger strategic um, goals, but, you know, this is something that is very tangible and, you know, in a certain port client portfolio, client profile, it matters quite a bit. Like, you know, as you run through uh, entire plan, you can see the impact of that in a vivid, in vivid details. So uh, the, service that I offer is that depending on the client, depending on the type, depending on what they're trying to do, because some clients basically they, they're well read and they say, yeah, I just want to track the index. I don't want any deviation from the index. I want to minimize the tracking error. If there are some unique opportunities for us to, you know, to optimize in terms of taxes, let's go for that. But I really want to get as close to the index as possible. So that's one extreme. And, and you know, another alternative is I want to minimize the number of trades or number of positions. Some people have, you know, in the financial services industry, uh, have preclearance requirements. So again, there's all, there's, there are certain constraints that you're dealing with. But then there are others that come with uh, existing portfolio that has low cost basis uh, holdings. They have certain cash flows that are forced, so they they want to optimize. They want their por portfolio to help. Uh, get them out of that higher, potentially higher tax bracket. And uh, I believe that in many of those cases, building a customized portfolio that tracks the index closely, but not exactly, is, uh, is what, uh, what serves them best. And obviously, as with anything else in financial services, it, there's an educational component. You have to explain to them what is it, why am I doing, what am I doing and why am I doing that? And that they have to be fully bought in as much as they can, you know, based on the, you know, based on the uh, technical element of it. But does it cost more? Do you add on something to the flat fee or is it just flat? The way, the way my practice is structured is that I have a flat fee but if somebody walks through the door with a portfolio that requires me to spend significantly more amount of time customizing, then that flat fee is basically determined based on complexity. So it is a flat fee. I have a base fee of $8,000 a year. And usually, you know, that covers most of the clients coming in with, let's say, you know, again, I don't charge for AUM. So usually under $2 million of AUM is included. And if somebody comes in with $15 million, there's a reasonable chance. Now, it's possible that they walk in and they just want to track the index, in which case, you know, it's the same fee, right? Because again, we get into ETFs and, 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 uh, and that's the end of the story. If they really want to optimize uh, the taxes because of their unique situation and the size of the portfolio warrants me to spend more time on that case, that's where the flat fee is, is you know, higher than my typical, mainly because of the level of complexity. So this would be a fee raise for them. 
there would be a fee that is pre-negotiated uh, up front uh, that is reflective of the amount of time that I will have to spend optimizing their portfolio. It's not a fee raise. Again, if I have a brand new client that walks through the door and they have an option to go to Betterment Wealth, Wealth Fund, um, Wealthfront, uh, Fidelity, or another advisor, I walk them through my practice, what I spend most of the time on, and my original determination of how much extra time I would have to spend on their, on their portfolio just due to the sheer size of it and the unique circumstances. And then we just basically agree on, uh, on a fee schedule and they determine whether it makes sense for them or not. In the exact same way, like a law practice would operate and accounting practice would operate. Again, the, the fee is based on complexity. Typical client just fits into my normal structure. I've had cases where I had people walk through the door where the portfolio size was uh, significantly larger and they would benefit from that complexity, in which case the fee would go up, but not proportionally. Not you know, Again, I don't charge based on AUM. I know that AUM is usually a proportional increase. In, in my case, it is very much not proportional. It's just reflective of the extra time that I would have to spend. What percentage of the time you end up doing this? Percentage of my time or percentage of client my time on a given client? Because it depends. I mean, clients, I have, sorry. What percentage of clients would you say you do this for? About a third. Third, you know, it depends, obviously, but about a third. And do the, just out of curiosity, uh, Igor, do they ask for that or is that your recommendation for those third people? Typically, it's my recommendation. They ask for it because, so that's an interesting question, Scott. Sometimes they ask for it, prospects ask for it because it is a buzzword that, you know, the industry is just promoting. So they're like, oh, do you do tax loss? They don't know what it is, but they do you do tax loss harvesting. Do you do direct indexing? And usually wh whatever I answer, you know, it's pretty clear that they, they don't know what it really means. They're just basically trying to check the box. And then again, it's an opportunity to educate and, and explain what it really means and to determine whether they need it or not. So obviously, as a fiduciary, I am not going to, even though I don't charge extra for it, but there's an implicit cost in doing that, right? You know, there's, there's noise, there's, uh, there's, there's extra complexity, there's, you know, if the client is not happy with me and they want to uh, switch from me to another advisor, now that advisor who doesn't do direct indexing is dealing with a portfolio of, you know, 75 securities they don't know what to do with. So all of it has to be explained really well. And the client or prospect needs to be fully educated before we actually take on that uh, additional um, additional responsibility. But, but kind of in a perverse way, aren't you just adding complexity when you do this? I mean, they're not asking for complexity. So you're actually making their life more complex by doing this type of approach. Okay. Uh let me ask you this question. Uh, when you hear that, what do you, what, what do you, what, what, when you hear that somebody offers that service, what do you actually hear? Like, do, 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 do you think it's a way for me to, do you think it's a way for me to kind of keep the client because I just sold them my service as if I knew, knew something that the next advisor doesn't like, what, why, why is this, why does it generate this reaction? I'm just curious. Well, when you, the way you describe, again, this isn't nothing personal because I think a lot of people do the same thing. In fact, that's the way the industry is promoting it is, is again, the buzzwords, they're checking the box as a, a client or prospective client, they hear tax loss harvesting. So they came in and you said, yeah, we, we do tax loss harvesting, but again, you don't need to necessarily do that with direct indexing. So I think that that's where, when you say there's opportunities for education, there's opportunities for education on the other side of it as well. Like if they're just trying to get tax loss harvesting and their, their goal is to, you know, offset kind of future gains that they might have. They don't have low cost basis stock. They don't have concentrated positions in, in company stock. The few use cases that I would tend to agree where it could be beneficial to clients. All the other ones is, yeah, I do direct. I mean, I, I do uh, tax loss harvesting 
as well for clients. In fact, in the last month or so, for various clients, I've harvested hundreds of thousands of dollars of tax loss using ETFs, using index funds that are ETFs. I don't need direct indexing to do that. So you can educate clients that, yeah, you can get them tax losses, but it's not going to be with hundreds of individual stocks. And then, you know, again, nothing with you, but then the next industry uh, provider would say, well, then we could do personalization as well. Okay, well, so can I. I mean, again, you mentioned one way earlier in the podcast here where, again, not ideal, but certainly better than hundreds of stocks is you can replicate like the S&P that's sort of being promoted right now is the direct indexing product uh, with just sector funds. So if they really don't want a sector for whatever reason, or they do have low cost basis stock and like technology, just take the whole sector out and replicate the other sector so you come up with the performance of the S&P. So there's other cheaper, less complicated ways to do this stuff. But again, I get back to, again, what problem are we trying to solve? I've had nobody come to me in 20 years, not a single person that says that they want personalization to the level that's being promoted with this direct indexing product today. Uh, so I, I, I would respond to that is that people, it depends on what your clientele is. A lot of times they don't know what to ask for. So it's our job to educate them. Part of our job is to educate them what is possible. They don't ask for it because they don't know what's possible and if it's good for them. That's one thing. Second thing, I like I said, it's about a third of the clients that use direct indexing. Uh, so I'm not really shoving it down their throat uh, just because it doesn't fit them, right? As a fiduciary, that is my job, right? You know, as we all know, to put my clients... Uh, my clients, uh, my client has to benefit benefit from it first. So it's not job security. It's not check the box. Uh, I have to obviously believe that the client would benefit from my individual from from me getting into that space uh, and them getting that level of complexity more so than them just basically you know having a a few index funds uh, ETFs that would do the job and it's always on the continuum right like it's not black and white it's not either like either we do all of it or we do none of it it depends like anything else in personal finance it depends on individual situation uh, my main point is that i have a tool that i can use that doesn't mean that that tool is going to be used on every client it's going to be but I, what i take issue with is that you're saying that the tool is useless and I'm saying that it's not I useless at all. The mass public. I didn't say that. I said I agree. With I don't serve mass public. I, I serve clients that come that come to me, and then I educate them. And again, that's where from the beginning I was trying to figure out how do we frame this conversation so that it is po at least possible for me to defend the the, the the tool as opposed to defend the industry that is over. Because I already considered that point. Yeah, the industry is is um, in the manic. Uh, desire to make more money uh, is trying to, to... That brings up a good point. And that was one of the points I wanted to make. So, I mean, taking advisors out of the equation for a minute and just the, the industry that has created the product and the technology providers that are either part of the, the industry itself or the providers that eventually get sort of scooped up into it, you know, it gets back to the point I was making earlier of, you know, we've wrung all the costs out of indexing and, and it's very popular and a lot of people want it. And, and, you know, they want it for the simplicity of it and a number of other things. And th is this Wall Street's way now of, of generating more money, even though there's no commissions, you still bid-ask spreads, there's still payment for order flow, market makers are still making money on this stuff. So, you know, when you look at it, at the end of the day, Wall Street's doing just fine. And now this is kind of really being pushed out on the advisor community. And I, I, don't, I don't see a lot of advisors writing about direct indexing or talking about it. Uh, certainly the ones that are doing it, they may talk privately with clients about it. Again, to your point, uh, Igor, if it, if it makes sense for a particular client, but it's being pushed by the media that's needing to write stories about, you know, all willing large firms like Schwab and Fidelity and, and others and that are getting into this space. And at the end of the day, it's a moneymaker for them. And then I just feel personally that it just adds complexity to clients and it's sort of being pushed to advisors out there as a, yeah, another tool that they can use with clients, but it's not necessarily 
the tool that, that people need. And then I think, you know, again, we're running on time probably, Sarah, I don't know how long you want to go here, but one last point that I want to make, unless you want to continue on, is that I just also feel that we've sort of come full circle on this. So, you know, as indexing became popular, more and more people became educated about it, more and more people wanted that simplicity and low cost approach to managing their portfolio where they didn't have to think about it. And now here we are again, to my point I just made that is Wall Street pushing this product now out on advisors that are pushing it out on clients to can come full circle back to the complexity and again, money-making apparatus of Wall yeah, Street. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, so, sorry, Scott. I think we have a fundamental, like the, the, the thing that we can't seem to agree on is that I mean, you're you're coming from a point that this product is being pushed onto people, and I'm coming from a different point. I'm saying there's a tool that didn't exist before. It was it did, you know there was it, there was providers that did this a Perio, a Parametric. I mean, they all did it for like a quarter of a point or less. So these okay. tools existed ten years ago. It was not unless you had $20 million, it was just not economical because you had both commissions and you needed a, a family office to, to do this. My point is that right now, a solo advisor can offer a service. Obviously, I have to be smart enough to figure out or you know, I have to exercise my fiduciary duty to figure out who the appropriate client is for that tool. Uh, so that's where, that's where, you know, again, I think we're talking a little bit past each other where I'm still, all I'm defending is that the tool is useful. It didn't build, it didn't exist before it exists. Now I believe I use the tool to the, to the benefit of all the clients that employ that tool or employ the service that, you know, that I use the tool for. And, uh, and I think it's all, overall, it's positive. If other people use this tool and try to sell it or a service associated with it or a name of a service so that they can put their name on the list, uh, then yeah, I mean, it's again, we're going back to insurance as a bad product as opposed to insurance sales practices as, as bad. It's, this, it's, the same, it's the same circular reference. So I can't defend insurance sales practices, but I am back to the same point where for some people, insurance products actually fit the bill and uh, let's not dismiss that because, you know, even insurance industry evolved over the last 10 or 20 years to a point where oh. the product, even the products. Okay. Are but, but so this product is for I this many people and it's being promoted by Wall Street for this many people. Mm. Okay, gentlemen, final statements before I conclude the debate. Michael. Thanks. Um, so direct indexing is a useful tool for clients that have very complex needs or have restrictions that impact what you can and cannot hold for them. It's something that should be considered among the suite of tools. It's not a one-stop solution for all, and it's not right to immediately uh, dismiss it out of hand as not working for a, variety, a large number of clients, nor is it correct to immediately assume that it's right for everyone you should evaluate it as a financial advisor, just as you would any other option for your client in terms of here are the pros and cons. And I think you should be clear and transparent with every client about the advantages and disadvantages of, disadvantages of using it versus any other approach. Thanks. Thank you, Igor. I think Michael put it uh, quite nicely. Uh, yeah, and I'll finish with the exact same point that it is a tool uh, it didn't exist in the current in the current form uh, over the last five or ten years, and it can be extremely useful for a subset of clients. Uh, and uh, I think it's going to be increasingly more useful as the industry invests more time and money into it. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Scott, your final comment. My final comment is exactly what I just said. It, it's for this much of the overall clientele that might benefit. Wall Street's promoting it to this many people. It's number one, complexity. It's at the moment too high cost because a lot of it is being provided on platforms that charge additional fees. Tax loss harvesting benefits are way overrated when a lot of advisors are now coming full circle on that and the way that they're talking about it with clients and really just kind of narrowing it down to, oh, well, we'll get you $3,000 a year to write off against ordinary income, not all this benefit that, you know, we're going to continuously tax harvest and you're going to have all this 
you know, tax losses for future and so on. So at the end of the day, it's another gimmicky Wall Street product, just like other things that have come in its past. And I'm sure that other things that will come in its future. My final comment is I'm depressed. <laughs> I find it depressing that this is the overall state of the industry. So that's a little bit more philosophical, but that's my final statement. Well, anyways, everybody, thank you for being here. And again, nothing can be interpreted as a recommendation here. If you're an investor, uh, if you're a financial advisor, please do your own research when you're considering any type of an investment decision. And I thank all of you for being here with us today. I think the exercise has been very educational for everybody involved and hopefully the listeners as well. And I hope that everybody will rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Thank you, folks.